This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The cession of Louisiana and the Floridas by Spain to France works most sorely on the U.S., It completely reverses all the political relations of the U.S. and will form a new epoch in our political course. Of all nations of any consideration, France is the one which hitherto has offered the fewest points on which we could have any conflict of right and the most points of a communion of interests. From these causes, we have ever looked to her as our natural friend. The impetuosity of her temper, the energy and restlessness of her character, placed in a point of eternal friction with us and our character, which, though quiet and loving peace in the pursuit of wealth, is high-minded, despising wealth and competition with insult or injury, enterprising and energetic as any nation on earth. These circumstances render it impossible that France and the U.S. can continue long friends when they meet in so irritable a position. The day that France takes possession of New Orleans fixes the sentence which is to restrain her forever within her low watermark. It seals the union of two nations, who in conjunction can maintain exclusive possession of the ocean. From that moment, we must marry ourselves to the British fleet and nation. Jefferson was one of the strongest proponents of the French cause during the 1790s. But by the time he was beginning his second year as president, the international situation had gotten to the point where, in a private letter to U.S. Minister to France Robert R. Livingston in mid-April 1802, He was asserting that the U.S. might just be forced into a military and economic alliance with Great Britain, the nation which he had considered an adversary for a good portion of his adult life, and an alliance which he had opposed during his leadership of the political party that had swept him into office. How in the world did we get to this point? That's a question that we intend to explore starting in this episode of The Presidencies of the United States. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I'd also like to thank my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. Taking on new endeavors can be a bit daunting, and starting the Presidency's podcast was no exception. However, from the very beginning, Alex has been very supportive of my efforts, including, but not limited to, providing intro quotes from time to time, and I cannot thank him enough. A couple of quick announcements before we move forward. The next episode is scheduled to come out on the last Sunday of 2019, but as I will be traveling for the holidays, there may be a slight delay. For those listening in the future, you won't notice a difference. But for those listening along with the release, I just want to give you a heads up, and I'll post more information on social media as we get closer, should there be a delay. I also wanted to mention that I will actually be making a live appearance. That's right, I've been invited to lead an adult forum at St. Albans Episcopal Church in Davidson, North Carolina, just north of Charlotte, on Sunday, January 26, 2020. The topic will be Faith and the Presidencies, a discussion in three parts. I'll be posting more about it on social media as it gets closer, but for anyone in the area who would like to attend, it'll begin around 9 a.m., so mark your calendars. I think that's all the announcements I have, so without further ado, Let's turn our attention back to early 19th century America. 
We haven't talked in detail about what was happening on the Georgia frontier since episode 1.24, so let's take a moment to get up to speed. And yes, I promise that this does relate back to Franco-American relations and U.S. foreign policy in general. As we discussed in the earlier episode, there were ambitious speculators who were eager to obtain land grants to the land that was still claimed by the state of Georgia, which stretched from the Atlantic Ocean westward to the Mississippi River. But wait, you say, wasn't the western portion of that the Mississippi Territory that was created in 1798? Ah, dear listener, that is only one part of the problem. Not only had Georgia not ceded its claim to the majority of what is now Mississippi and Alabama by the time Jefferson took office, but there had also been a slew of land grants issued during the Washington and Adams administrations. As Ralph Abernathy described, as justices of the peace in Georgia had been granted the authority by the state starting in 1789 to issue land grants for quote-unquote unappropriated lands when presented by the claimant with a survey of the land, Quote, Justices of the Peace certified fictitious surveys which stated that corners were marked by blazes on hickory, oak, and walnut trees, which did not grow in the pine barrens of the area. The governors of Georgia also got in on the action, quote, signing and affixing the great seal of the state to grants without the slightest authority under the law and contrary to all laws on the subject of head grant rights. It was so bad that, in what was then claimed as Georgia, quote, by 1796, over 29 million acres were granted in the 24 existing counties where there were actually less than 9 million acres in all. As would be expected by those familiar with the history of the time, it comes as little surprise that these land grants were issued with little to no consideration for the Native American inhabitants of the area, which, as discussed in episode 1.24, put the state government in contention with the federal government and its policy of negotiating treaties with Native American nations to open lands up for settlement. Land grants in the West had also caused major contention in Georgian politics, as a consortium of land-grant companies with connections to prominent federal and state politicians had used their influence to pass a bill in the Georgia state legislature dubbed the Yazoo Act in 1795. This act granted the four companies rights to 40 million acres in the West under very generous terms and despite a better offer having been put forward by a rival land-grant company. The uproar over the blatant land grab resulted in, quote, one member of the legislature who had voted for it fleeing the state and another narrowly escaping hanging. Across the state, it was the subject of scrutiny, and Congress even approved a resolution condemning the Yazoo Act. Senator James Jackson, Democratic-Republican from Georgia, wrote letters to the editor using the pseudonym Cecilius, attacking the Yazoo grants as being invalid, and when he left the U.S. Senate to join the Georgia House of Representatives, he was elected chair of a committee which, on January 26, 1796, issued, quote, a report declaring that the grants were obtained by the use of bribery and that they were unconstitutional because the lands in question were confirmed to the Choctaw and Chickasaw Indians by the Treaties of Hopewell, negotiated by the Continental Congress in 1786. In quick order, on February 13th, the Georgia State Legislature rescinded the Yazoo Act. However, by this point, some of the claims have been sold to speculators in other parts of the nation. And those speculators brought in none other than Alexander Hamilton, who wrote out an opinion, quote, 
that Georgia had violated the obligation of a contract and that her rescinding act was therefore illegal under the federal constitution. Some of the speculators retained Representative Robert Goodloe Harper, Federalist from South Carolina, as their attorney and prepared a case. The legal complications would continue on for years, but the Yazoo scandal had burned the state of Georgia enough that, on January 29, 1798, the Georgia House of Representatives, by a vote of 32 to 2, approved a resolution recommending that the upcoming Constitutional Convention, quote, make provision for cession to the United States lands lying west of the Chattahoochee River on condition that the federal government pay Georgia $1.5 million and remove the Indians from all the territory remaining to the state. Not only did the Constitutional Convention make such a provision, but it also confirmed the rescinding act and resolved, quote, that monopolies of land by individuals being contrary to the spirit of our free government no sale of territory of this state or any part thereof shall take place to individuals or private companies unless a county or counties shall have been first laid off, including such territory, and the Indian rights shall have been extinguished thereto. The Convention of 1798 was determined to ensure that there would be no more mess like the Yazoo Act of 1795, but the problems remained of settling the conflicting land claims and of negotiating a handover of the Western lands to the U.S. government. Congress passed an act on April 7, 1798, to authorize President Adams, quote, to appoint three commissioners to negotiate with Georgia commissioners to settle conflicting land claims. However, by the time Jefferson came to office, little progress had been made on either settling the land claims or negotiating the cession of the Western Territory. Thus, the new president appointed a new commission consisting of Secretary of State Madison, Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, and Attorney General Lincoln to meet with the commissioners from Georgia. As all of the parties on both sides were Democratic Republicans, they were able to make more progress, and by April 24, 1802, they had an agreement. The U.S. government would pay Georgia $1.25 million and assured the state that it would set aside 5 million acres to help resolve land claims in the region and work to have any Native American claims to land in the state boundaries, quote, extinguished as soon as possible. The resolution of the Georgia claims to the Southwestern Territory meant that the focus of efforts to develop the economic potential of those lands could be focused on the Mississippi Territory. The territory had already been advanced to the second stage of territorial government, where the citizens of the territory were able to elect their own legislature. This step was taken despite not being able to prove that the Mississippi Territory had reached the required population of 5,000 to advance to that stage. But no one seems to have gotten too hung up on that pesky detail, so we won't either, especially as there were more pressing concerns at the time. As discussed in episode 3.7, as the territory's primary economic engine was the Mississippi River, the success of the territory was dependent on the continuation of access for American merchants and farmers to the port of New Orleans. So long as New Orleans remained in Spanish hands, that was assured under Pinckney's treaty. As 1801 went on, though, more and more rumors were reaching American shores that Louisiana would soon be a French territory again, something which would throw the entire region into disorder. Before we discuss France, however, we must first shift our attention to Great Britain as we need to understand a couple of happenings there in order to understand French moves in 1802. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As discussed in episode 3.5, March 1801 had seen the end of William Pitt the Younger's 17 years as Prime Minister. In his place was the 43-year-old Henry Addington. Despite Addington seeming to possess the confidence of both Pitt and British King George III, it seems that the press was not so enthusiastic about his accession to power, with even the enthusiasm of pro-Tory newspapers being muted. Despite the anxieties about his government, Addington's new ministry quickly assembled, with Lord Grenville, who had served as Foreign Secretary for nearly a decade, being replaced by Robert Banks Jenkinson, Lord Hawkesbury. Historian Bradford Perkins notes of Hawkesbury that, quote, the selection of this young and untried man to face the problems of war and a new armed neutrality was a measure of the weakness of the administration, and the public's reaction was not a good augury for its success. As noted by Addington biographer Charles John Federack, quote, The most pressing issue facing Addington when he took office was the threat to British security posed by the military, economic, and social consequences of the war with France and by the naval dispute with the League of Armed Neutrality. British conquest of the colonies of the French and their allies in the East and West Indies could not compensate the British economy for the harm caused by the war. Business and personal bankruptcies were increasing, as were the ranks of the unemployed. The British economy required a respite from the conditions of war and a restoration of traditional markets. Two days into office, Addington met with his new cabinet, and they sent a formal request to the king to enter into peace negotiations with the French, with the king's approval coming that same day. Meanwhile, U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King had been working with the British government for some time to try to find a resolution to the breakdown in the work of one of the commissions established by Jay's Treaty. The commission had been charged with examining the claims of British creditors who were seeking repayment in debts incurred by American citizens prior to the Revolutionary War. But the back and forth between the British and American commissioners had gotten so acrimonious that the Americans walked out in the summer of 1799 and the commission, in all practical senses, ceased to be. Since then, King had been working on a deal to settle the matter with the U.S. government offering to pay a lump sum to the British to resolve the claims as they saw fit. And just as he began final negotiations with Foreign Secretary Grenville, the Pitt government collapsed and the new Foreign Secretary was not quite so attentive to the U.S. diplomat. King attempted to go around Hawkesbury and bring the matter up to Addington himself, but he found little progress in that route. He even approached Undersecretary in the Foreign Office and former British Minister to the U.S., George Hammond, as well as the former Foreign Secretary, Lord Grenville. Though both were in favor of the resolution, neither had much authority to move matters along in an Addington ministry, which was more focused on European matters and, in particular, peace with France. Like their counterparts in the British government, British First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte and the consulate government found that public sentiment was strongly in favor of peace after a decade of constant wars. As Hawkesbury began negotiations with the French diplomat, they found themselves at odds over Egypt. As you may recall from episode 2.18, Napoleon's plans for the conquest of Egypt had gone awry, and he had fled from his own expedition in late August 1799. 
Obviously, it worked out well for him, as he returned to Paris and took over the government, but Napoleon still had troops in Egypt in 1801. There had nearly been a resolution in early 1800, as British Commodore Sir William Sidney Smith, following a victory over French forces at El Arish in late January, had negotiated for the French to evacuate Egypt and return to France, with the French getting to retain their arms. But the terms of this deal were rejected by the commander-in-chief of the British Mediterranean fleet, so the fighting continued. French forces under General Jean-Baptiste Clébert went on to defeat an Ottoman army that outnumbered them 7-1 to one in late March, which brought a brief respite of hope to the troops. But this was soon dashed when First Consul Napoleon ordered four key generals in the Egyptian force to return to France, and Clébert died on June 14th. With the Ottoman forces continuing to press forward towards Egypt, and with the British successfully landing a 60,000-strong force at Abukir Bay in a major victory over the French on March 21, 1801, the inevitability of defeat for the French loomed ever larger, and the British position in negotiations continued to strengthen. However, despite the diplomats being engaged in a back-and-forth throughout the year, the British and the French continued to find themselves at an impasse. Finally, in late September, Addington decided the time had come to make one final push for peace. To do so, he enlisted his predecessor, William Pitt, and the two met with Hawkesbury, who, by that point, had adopted a position against any further concessions than had already been put on the table, which included dividing up between the two nations islands in the West Indies that had been taken by the British during the course of the conflict, and for Malta to be confirmed as neutral after British forces evacuated. Addington and Pitt, however, were concerned about the possibility of the French invading Britain if peace was not concluded, and thus were open to more concession, a point which they tried to drive home to the young foreign secretary. Not willing to leave anything to chance, however, Addington decided to drop in on Hawkesbury's meeting with the French diplomatic agent on September 28th, quote, and effectively took the reins of negotiations from the foreign secretary. Whether Addington had deployed his natural charm and diplomatic skills to greater effect, or his position as Prime Minister gave him greater weight in the negotiations, is not clear. Regardless, the French diplomat stated that Addington was a more effective negotiator than Hawkesbury had been. By October 1st, Addington had a peace proposal to put forward to his cabinet. After gaining their approval, Addington went to the king, who gave his assent, and the British and French signed the preliminaries of London, a major step towards a final peace treaty. With peace with the British in the works, and with the Egyptian fiasco finally being at an end, with the final surrender of the remaining troops on September 2nd, First Consul Napoleon was able to turn more of his attention to the Western Hemisphere. Again from episode 3.5, the French in a quick war that year with Portugal had gained control of a large portion of territory in South America, and the Spanish had already ceded Louisiana back to the French, though the consulate government had not yet taken possession of that territory. In order to achieve his aims, Bonaparte would need to make some changes in-house. On October 1st, 1801, he summoned Rear Admiral Denis de Clay to the Tuileries Palace. De Clay had a storied career in the French Navy and, quote, a reputation for loyalty to Napoleon, as well as ironclad firmness. He was, as noted by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoem, quote, one of the few men who failed to achieve goal after goal, yet avoided swift and final retaliation from the great man, i.e. Bonaparte. The first consul named de Clay as Minister of the Navy and the Colonies. De Clay was charged with reorganizing, quote, 
the Navy's fleets, organizations, and ports, and worked to substantially increase French shipbuilding capacity. Ships would be much needed as Napoleon had plans to send French forces across the Atlantic to finally bring peace to what had been the crown jewel of the French colonial empire, Saint-Domingue. However, he would find his ambitions stymied by the realities on the ground. As we've discussed, most recently in episode 3.5, the Saint-Domingue of the early 1800s was not the same colony that it had been prior to what we now call the Haitian Revolution. As noted by historian Gordon Brown, it, quote, was no longer, after years of war and the breakdown of the old plantation economy, as attractive a market as it once had been. A decade of fighting had created demand for American munitions and supplies, but that was not a permanent situation. And in the meantime, the colony's exports had become less competitive. The island's plantation-based export economy had collapsed entirely during the years of fighting. Toussaint Louverture, who had been declared Governor General for Life by the new constitution of the colony in July 1801, had worked to stabilize the situation by placing limits on the freedom of the cultivators in order to restore the plantation economy. But Louverture would quickly be faced with strong headwinds threatening any forward motion for his government. Toussaint's fight for control of Saint-Domingue had been aided by the U.S. government led by John Adams, but the situation had started to shift even before Adams left office. With the peace agreement with France, U.S. naval forces had been withdrawn from the Caribbean and the U.S. embargo on France had expired. Thus, by the time Jefferson took the oath of office, trade with Saint-Domingue had returned to being just one part of a larger trade network with France and its colonies and Jefferson saw no reason to treat it as anything other than that. He would find, though, that the French government wanted more assurances than his silence on the situation. As part of the U.S. support for Toussaint during the Quasi-War, a consul general had been appointed to Saint-Domingue and stationed at Le Cap to coordinate efforts with Louverture. Shortly after his arrival in Washington, the new French Charge d'Affaires began discussions with Jefferson about Saint-Domingue. The new diplomatic envoy is someone we've met before, Louis-André Pichot had been French Foreign Minister Talleyrand's envoy to William Vans Murray in The Hague, who had helped restart Franco-American negotiations and who we last encountered in episode 2.22. Because of this diplomatic success, Pichon had been chosen to represent the French government in Washington, and the situation in Saint-Domingue was of particular concern. Though independence had not been declared, it was increasingly clear that Louverture meant to wield control in Saint-Domingue and having an American consul general supporting his efforts was intolerable to the French government. Thus, Jefferson decided to name a new representative to Saint-Domingue and chose for the post someone we haven't heard from for quite some time. We last encountered Tobias Slayer at George Washington's deathbed in episode 1.35, but for context in terms of the narrative of the podcast, that was only a year and a quarter from the time that Jefferson sent Lear a letter asking him to take up the mission to Saint-Domingue. Since Washington's death in December 1799, Lear had stayed on Mount Vernon to work, as the former president had charged him to do, on organizing Washington's papers. He also did some secretarial tasks for Martha Washington, but the majority of his time was spent in managing a farm that Washington had given him a life tenancy to in his will. Lear also engaged in social activities in Georgetown and the new federal capital of Washington, D.C., and was apparently involved in the transfer of the government from Philadelphia. 
Rubbing elbows with the incoming government officials apparently didn't hurt his prospects. And despite his longtime benefactor having been George Washington, who had turned increasingly Federalist over the years, Lear apparently got along well with Jefferson and his new administration. So much so that Jefferson wrote to him on March 29th, offering him the post in Saint-Domingue. Lear initially refused and recommended Bartholomew Dandridge, but by April 5th, he had relented and agreed to serve in the post. Lear would not be going as consul general, however. In a nod to French sensibilities, Jefferson appointed Lear as general commercial agent to Saint-Domingue. Even with this downgraded diplomatic mission, Pichon was not satisfied and continued to press Secretary of State Madison upon his arrival in Washington for more firm assurances that the U.S. would not interfere with matters in Saint-Domingue. Madison, however, wanted to leave U.S. options open. Though assuring Pichon that U.S. interests in Saint-Domingue were only related to trade, he also stated that, as Pichon reported to his government, quote, they do not want to get into a problem with Toussaint. Not getting the answer that he wanted from the Secretary of State, Pichon decided to go right to the top and met with Jefferson on July 20th. Conveniently for the French chargé, Jefferson was the one who brought up the subject of Saint-Domingue, discussing news that was coming in about the possibility of Toussaint declaring independence. Pichon questioned Jefferson on how his government would view such a move, with the president replying that they were against it, but until the French were in a position to act, he would have to remain silent and keep relations open with Louverture to protect U.S. trading interests. Jefferson did give some advice, though. If France could attain peace with Great Britain, that would free up the military resources that they could use to take on Toussaint and secure French control over its quasi-independent colony. In that instance, the United States would do nothing to support Toussaint. After all, Why would a nation which was, in part, supported by a slave economy want to support a government that had been established by people who had rebelled against enslavement? With that statement in a private conversation with the U.S. president, Pichon was able to assure his government that they could proceed with plans to restore control over Saint-Domingue. Toussaint, meanwhile, was facing internal problems. In late October 1801, he had to respond to a series of uprisings on plantations in the northern part of Saint-Domingue. While sending one of his top generals, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, to put down that revolt, the commander-in-chief in Le Cap, Henri Christophe, discovered a conspiracy against Toussaint there with evidence that Toussaint's adopted nephew, General Moïse, was involved in the plot. L'Overture confronted Moïse and had him executed a month later, along with another veteran officer from his command who was also implicated in the conspiracy. Historian Laurent Dubois described Toussaint to be in, quote, a kind of delirium after his confrontation with Moïse, and he seems to have become increasingly paranoid, establishing with a decree in November a new surveillance system through which he could ensure compliance with his orders and the reestablishment of the plantation system. Economically, Toussaint was seeing results, with coffee exports rising in 1801 to nearly two-thirds what they had been prior to the revolution in 1789. Even Tobias Lear, who had arrived in Le Cap in early July, had initially reported shortly after his arrival that he, quote, found things as favorable as I had right to expect. They are improving very fast on the ruins of this once beautiful town, and the intercourse between this island and the United States is very considerable. Peace and good order prevail in the colony. However, as Dubois notes, quote, committed to defending liberty at all costs, L'Overture had turned himself into a dictator, 
and the colony he ruled over into a society based on social hierarchy, forced labor, and violent repression. With the events of the fall, Lear's reports back to the U.S. became more pessimistic. He wrote that the news of the uprisings and conspiracy had, quote, given a real shock to all business here, and it will be some time before it will recover and resume its activity. Terror and dismay was spread everywhere to a degree exceeding belief. Before things could settle, rumors of peace between Britain and France were fueling speculation that French forces would soon be on their way, and indeed, a fleet of ships was at that point crossing the Atlantic, bound for the island of Hispaniola. First Consul Napoleon had appointed his brother-in-law, General Charles-Victor Emmanuel Leclerc, to lead around 22,000 French troops to Saint-Domingue to restore order. Fifty ships total launched from numerous ports, and when Louverture saw the naval force off the coast, it is rumored that he exclaimed that, quote, all of France is coming to Saint-Domingue. We'll leave Saint-Domingue at this point and return back to France, where, around the same time that Leclerc's expedition was headed towards the Caribbean, the new U.S. minister to France was arriving in Paris. As you may recall from episode 3.4, Robert Livingston had been named to that post in March 1801, but with making arrangements for travel and awaiting news of whether the changes to the Convention of Mortfontaine were acceptable to the French government, Livingston, his family, and their staff and servants did not depart from New York until mid-October. The arrival of Livingston in Paris in December 1801 meant the resumption of normal relations between the U.S. and France for the first time in half a decade. But that did not necessarily mean smooth sailing in Franco-American relations. Livingston had been given instructions to find out whether or not the rumors were true that Louisiana was being ceded back to the French, and, if it were true, to find out just how far along in the process the session was. If it was not yet complete, Livingston was to work to dissuade the consulate government from seeing it through as the move would imperil U.S. relations with France. If the session was already a done deal, however, Livingston was not to threaten relations with France, but rather to use the issue to see if the French were willing to facilitate the cession of the Floridas, in particular West Florida, to the U.S. As we will be talking about it quite a bit in the remainder of this series and the next, this seems like a good time to explain the Floridas. For modern-day listeners, 2019 as of this recording, we only know of a singular Florida, but most of what we know of as Florida was then known as East Florida. West Florida was a district that ran from Baton Rouge on the east side of the Mississippi River across the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain through what is now the Mississippi and Alabama Gulf Coast. Due to the position of Baton Rouge on the Mississippi River and the Port of Mobile on the east side of the territory, West Florida was seen as being important territory to acquire both economically and strategically. And if you're going to ask for West Florida, you might as well see if East Florida can be thrown in too, right? Though Livingston was well-received by French Foreign Minister Talleyrand and First Consul Bonaparte upon his arrival, the new U.S. minister's efforts to address the situation of Louisiana quickly bogged down in Talleyrand's typical evasion games. It should be noted that one immediate hurdle to overcome in his diplomatic work was that Livingston could not adequately speak French. Even if he could, he was also deaf. Livingston could at least read French, but in his diplomatic mission, Livingston biographer George Dangerfield describes him as, quote, a lonely figure. Because of the lateness of Livingston's arrival and his initial struggles to settle into his new position, 
The first report officially confirming the cession of Louisiana to the French would not come from the U.S. mission in Paris, but rather the one in London. As early as late May 1801, U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King was openly discussing with British Foreign Secretary Lord Hawkesbury about intelligence received regarding the cession of Louisiana. By January 1802, King considered the news as fact and reported back to the Jefferson administration that they could not count on the British government to act against it, as the Addington Ministry was desperate to do nothing that would threaten the peace treaty with the French being finalized. Both King and Livingston sent back to Washington a copy of a supplemental treaty between France and Spain that confirmed the session. As the truth sunk in, the Jefferson administration back in the District of Columbia and the U.S. diplomats in Europe would have to figure out strategies to adopt to respond to this worst of circumstances becoming reality. In the meantime, King had been able to achieve a diplomatic success by finally getting Prime Minister Addington to discuss the lingering debt issue. Jefferson's administration had authorized King to offer up £600,000 to the British government to resolve the lingering claims by British creditors if they would agree to restart another commission about the seizure of American property. Addington and Hawkesbury came back with a request to include a provision for American courts to be open to British creditors moving forward, to which King ultimately agreed. And in January 1802, the U.S. and Britain signed a convention resolving the issue. Meanwhile, the diplomatic congress that had been assembled at Amiens, France, under the terms of the preliminary treaty and consisting of representatives from Britain, France, Spain, the Batavian Republic, the Ottoman Empire, and Portugal finally managed to conclude a final peace treaty after months of negotiations. The ins and outs of these negotiations are beyond the scope of this podcast, but what is important for us to know about the treaty is as follows. 1. A key stipulation was that Malta would be restored to the Order of St. John of Jerusalem as it had been prior to the French occupation and the subsequent British occupation. 2. The French were to pull back from Rome and the Kingdom of Naples in Italy. 3. News of the treaty was greeted with wild acclaim by crowds in London and Paris. As one French diplomat close to Napoleon asserted, quote, The epoch of the Peace of Amiens must be considered as the most glorious in the history of France. What's that you say? You don't remember an epoch of peace in European history in the early 19th century? Well, we'll come back to that all in due time, dear listener, for there is much more for us to say about the year of 1802. But for now, our time has drawn to a close. I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I'd like to call We Need to Talk. Until then, I'd like to thank my husband Alex again for providing the intro quote for this episode. I'd also like to thank the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music. To find out more about the Itinerant Band or the podcast, Check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you can find past episodes as well as information on the various places that you can listen to the podcast, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and more. And you can even learn how you, yes you, can help support the podcast. If you have any questions, there are numerous ways to reach me. I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can find me on social media. Look for me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, 
or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Thanks so much to all of you who have left ratings and reviews on iTunes. If you haven't yet, it only takes a minute of your time, but it is a great help in telling new listeners why they should check out the podcast. Finally, I wanted to say thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.